This is Dr. Ronald Hoffman. As you know, I'm a big proponent of CBD to tonify the endocannabinoid system. I've found that it helps people relax and can support restful sleep, a real breakthrough in herbal products. The CBD brand I take personally and recommend to my patients is Plus CBD from CV Sciences. And now I'm excited about a new natural wellness line from Plus CBD, CBD Calm and CBD Sleep. CBD Calm helps ease tension, soothe irritability, and contributes to a greater sense of contentment through a blend of Plus CBD's award-winning full-spectrum CBD, plus L-theanine, and 5-HTP. CBD Sleep aids occasional sleeplessness with CBD plus melatonin, as well as soothing magnolia bark extract and relaxing lemon balm so you can get the rest you need and wake up alert and focused. Both products are backed by science with clinically researched active ingredients. To learn more and to order, visit pluscbdoil.com Hoffman and use coupon code Hoffman30 for 30% off. That's pluscbdoil.com slash Hoffman. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. And today we're going to discuss a subject that uh, I think is of great interest because uh, it's a condition that afflicts tens of millions of Americans. Uh, The condition is IBS, Irritable Bowel Syndrome. Lately, we've heard a lot about SIBO, Small Intestine Bacterial Overgrowth. Today, we're going to talk to a board-certified gastroenterologist who's done clinical research on IBS and SIBO. And he's also come up with uh, an innovative solution that I think is worthy of your interest. He's Dr. Kenneth Brown. And so uh, welcome to Intelligent Medicine. It's a pleasure having you on the program. No, it is my honor, Dr. Hoffman. Thank you so much for having me on the Intelligent Medicine podcast. I'm thrilled to be here. Indeed. So uh, describe your background. You know, you're uh, trained as a conventional uh, board-certified gastroenterologist. Uh, however, uh, you, what's unusual is you've done more specific clinical research on IBS and SIBO, uh, with a view towards, uh, looking at natural approaches, correct? Correct. So I was, uh, I traditionally trained. So I have a, my medical degrees from university of Nebraska, and then I became a board certified internal medicine doctor followed by being board certified in, uh, gastroenterology is my specialty. So I've been practicing now for about uh, 16, 17 years, and about 10 years ago, I was actually heavily involved on the research side of things for the pharmaceutical area. So we were doing phase three and phase four clinical trials for uh, pharmaceuticals that are uh, getting FDA approval. And it was at that time that I was looking at a lot of the studies, a lot of the things that were being done, and what was actually needed to take a concept, a drug, all the way through to, to become FDA approved. And I just saw all these holes in the process and how the, we're putting so much confidence in these drugs, but we really weren't looking at a lot of these different natural solutions. And it was through that process, that slow evolution, where I kind of went from the traditional route more into the functional space. Well, indeed. And in fact, uh, up until recently, there haven't been many uh, uh, even conventional options for people suffering from IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, there have been medications that sort of tranquilize the bowels. Uh, they have a lot of side effects. They may reduce spasm or slow things down, or in some cases, the idea is to speed things up because there are different types of uh, IBS. And then there's a, a new approach uh, that relies on 
killing the bugs that supposedly are the causal uh, agent for SIBO, uh, for uh, IBS. And mm-hmm. you could talk a little bit about the concept of SIBO, which I'm pretty sure um, figured into the drug research. Exactly. So, you know, the funny thing is a gastroenterologist, irritable bowel syndrome or IBS, it actually affects, um, I mean, almost 20% of the U.S. population. $30 billion a year are actually spent trying to treat irritable bowel syndrome. And many of my own colleagues still believe that it is a process that is more in your head than it is in your gut. And so many times people are just being... Psychological, correct. So a lot of times uh, people are treating irritable bowel-like symptoms with antidepressants. Now, there's been this paradigm shift, much like that took place 30 years ago when we used to think that people would develop ulcers because they were stressed. And then it was, of course, determined that many of those ulcers are actually formed because of H. pylori or a bacteria in the stomach. Very similar paradigm shift that has taken place where now we realize that a lot of the symptoms of irritable bowel Uh, are actually caused by bacteria growing where it shouldn't be. It isn't that bacteria are good or bad. It's that something happens. You go through a very stressful event. You get a bad infection. You take some antibiotics. Something disrupts the motility, and then bacteria can start to grow. Then whenever you eat, those bacteria will break down the food and create all the symptoms that we label as a trash can diagnosis as irritable bowel syndrome. And this was all, when I was doing that pharmaceutical research, all of this was, um, I became friends with Mark Pimentel out of Cedar sinai mm-hmm. And he's the one that came up with this concept. He had these animal models. So before he even published anything, he was showing me the models of how he can reproduce this in animals. And I was actually part of the original Zyfaxin study. And that's where I really started to take a deep dive into those concepts. And that's when we figured out that we could treat bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, in a more effective, safer way using natural products. And that's how my shift took place. Before we get into uh, the current paradigm, which is treating SIBO with a medication, it's Cyfaxin, as as you mentioned, uh, and the potential uh, benefits, but also the potential drawbacks of that approach. Uh, Talk to us a little bit more about SIBO. What goes wrong in SIBO? I mean, shouldn't we have bacteria in our intestinal tracts? Isn't that natural? 100%. So when we talk about the multibiome, you can say microbiome, but I like to refer to it as a multibiome because there's more than just bacteria. The majority of that, or almost all of it, should reside in your colon, where you have over 100 trillion bacteria. The large intestine, right? The large intestine. 100 trillion bacteria, thousands of species. What people don't realize is that generally speaking, the body tries very hard to keep the stomach and the proximal small intestine, the small bowel called the duodenum, keep that relatively sterile through pancreatic secretion, through gastric acid, through bile, and so on, because that is actually uh, where you're going to be absorbing the food. You don't want a huge bacterial load because you'll just be feeding those bacteria. So ideally, when we eat, we keep that area sterile. And when you eat certain fibers and different undigestible things, then they go to your colon where your colonic bacteria will break them down into beneficial products for you if you're eating the proper diet. And the new term for that is actually called postbiotic now, where we've seen that bacteria can produce beneficial products if you eat properly polyphenols, things like that, uh, prebiotic type foods like fiber and such. So it all comes down to when something happens, the way that I describe it to my patients, if you can just imagine a crystal clear stream 
that's going through and it's beautiful and you could see right through it. And then if you can dam it up on both ends and make it stagnant water, bacteria will start to grow there. And that's exactly what takes place in many of these people that develop this bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. It's that something changes the motility, bacteria start to grow. And then when you eat specifically starches, those bacteria will break down the starches and produce gas. It can produce hydrogen and in the right environment, if enough hydrogen's around, another type of bacteria called an archaeobacter or a methane producing bacteria, or it's in its own kingdom, it actually will use that hydrogen and it can produce methane. So what we now have is we've always talked about irritable bowel being either constipation or diarrhea or a mix. That's always bothered me because, I mean, as a physician, how can you label something that has opposing symptoms? But right. we've done it for two, years. Two opposites, yeah, yeah. Two opposites, exactly. It always bothered me. But now we have a reason for it. If you're producing methane, that'll create constipation. If you're producing hydrogen sulfide, that'll create diarrhea. So this whole paradigm shift, we now can make sense of something that we have just traditionally called a trash can diagnosis. Now, is there a way of diagnosing SIBO, or can people uh, presume they have SIBO if they're gassy, if they uh, belch a lot, if they have a lot of flatulence, if they have either constipation or diarrhea? Is it reasonable to assume that they have SIBO, or is there a more precise way of pinning it down? Well, interesting. There are some tests out there. Um, the, the tests that are most of the time people will end up having completely normal blood work. And then they'll go see a gastroenterologist and they'll be scoped. And I've seen this happen a million times. Patients waking up. The doctor's like, good news. It's just irritable bowel syndrome. So and they, no wastebasket diagnosis. Nothing mm -hmm. that we can specifically treat. It's uh, you don't have cancer. You don't have ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease. Uh, you're in the clear. Yeah. And so it's, you know, the, the doctor feels good that there's nothing there, but the patient really has just been labeled with something. They still feel bad and they still feel real miserable. So traditionally speaking, um, blood work and normal tests will be all normal. So colonoscopy, endoscopy, blood work. So there are a few other tests that you can look at. One of them is a blood test, which actually looks for an antibody called vinculin, but that's only positive about 20% of the people. So we only use that occasionally. There are some institutions which will actually culture the small bowel. They call that a jejunal aspirate, mm -hmm. but it's very cumbersome and that's not done very often. It's so tough we're to kind do. Of, you have to go from above exactly. or below or how do you, above, I guess, right? You go from above and you try and do this. And so very few people do that. There's only a couple doctors in the country that actually do it. So we're kind of left with the best of all worlds, which is a hydrogen breath test. And what, what is done is you basically take in an unabsorbed sugar, uh, like lactulose, and you see if you have this spike in either hydrogen or methane, because if you have a lot of bacteria, they'll break it down, then you absorb that, and then you breathe it out, and you can assume that, oh, there might be some bacteria growing there because it's breaking down the sugar. The problem with that is there's a lot of heterogeneity and the specificity and sensitivity of these tests mm -hmm. aren't quite what people think they are. So all that being said, in my practice, the best way to see if somebody has bacterial overgrowth is to take a really good history, actually mm -hmm. sit and talk to somebody and they will usually spell it out. And the classic person will be somebody that shows up. And said, you know, doc, my whole life I've had this perfectly normal gut. I had a gut of steel. I could do anything. And I went to Mexico. My wife and I had our honeymoon there. I got really sick and I got better from that. But ever since then, that was six years ago, 
I've had this issue where every time I eat, I blow up. I mean, I just get like a bowling balls in my belly and I just, I'm just not right. Something's wrong. I, they'll complain of brain fog, fatigue, mm-hmm. anxiety, and some depression, which used to be labeled as irritable bowel, but right. now we realize that it's probably because of this low level inflammatory process in the gut. Well, that's interesting so, that you mentioned that because the symptoms are not just uh, confined to the gastrointestinal tract. Is it because people feel the distress and that causes them to be depressed or is there some sort of uh, harmful toxins, uh, endotoxins that are being released and absorbed in the bloodstream that get to the brain or can permeate the body? Oh, so this is a really fascinating new level of research that's going on right now. So once we realize that you have um, bacteria growing there, when I can look at my patients and go, do you have brain fog? And they go, oh my gosh, yes, I do. And you start hitting that. Are you having more anxiety? Yes. And then what I'll do is I'll draw out what's going on. What we now realize is that when you have bacterial overgrowth, you will increase your permeability or something known as leaky gut. Mm-hmm. You got to be careful using the term leaky gut around traditional doctors. They get because upset because they think they get there's upset. Swiss cheese holes in your gastrointestinal tract. There's no <laughs> exactly. such thing. Right. I, you, exactly. You've seen the but, pushback. But there's, but there's undoubtedly intestinal permeability. So if we just want to use describe the same thing. Yeah. And so we're having that. What happens is that leads to inflammatory cascade. So your body realizes something's not right and it's trying to fix it. One of the cells that lives right below the surface there with all the other white blood cells that we have is something called a mast cell. Now that mast cell, when it gets irritated, it'll dump its contents, which could be serotonin, histamine, or proteases, and it'll actually hit the enteric nerve or the nerve in your gut. Then that sends a direct route to the central nervous system. So now we realize, oh, it isn't just that your gut is there, it's that your gut is inflamed and you're sending a signal up to the brain. Mm -hmm. And so when we treat people and we get their intestines better, get rid of the SIBO, a lot of anxiety goes away, a lot of depression goes away. Um, We can really fix the brain-gut access. And Mm -hmm. And it's via the vagal nerve, the vagus, that uh, is kind of this... uh, eight-lane highway, brain, mm-hmm. gut, gut, brain, and it's a vicious cycle, actually. It really is, and you really kind of have to treat both. And I know somebody like you that probably deals with the whole person, it it plays into that where you have to fix their gut, you need to make sure they sleep well, they need to eat well, because then it'll be this vicious cycle of going back and forth if your brain is inflamed. I've been to a couple talking to different researchers, but I was floored. I went to um, a conference in Florida last year and a doctor named Alessio Fasano, who's this renowned gastroenterologist that kind of came up with the concept of um, some celiac markers and things. He gave a lecture where he said that the epidemic of autism and obesity can be tied to the integrity of the gut lining or intestinal permeability. And then later in the same year, I went to Paleo FX and Dr. David Perlmutter, who wrote Grain Brain, he was lecturing and he's a neurologist. And he said that the epidemic of dementia and Alzheimer's can be linked to intestinal inflammation or intestinal permeability. So here I am in one year listening to somebody talk about kids and somebody talking about the epidemic of dementia. That's cradle to grave. So we now realize that it's way more than just, oh, you're a little bloated. You're passing a little extra gas. This could lead to 
inflammatory cascades if it goes unchecked. So I'm very passionate about trying to protect the whole person right now so that you don't have these end organ problems as you carry this. And it's not just SIBO, but it's poor diet. It's all the other things associated that go into intestinal health. Okay, so we, we've established the importance of SIBO, not just in terms of the comfort level of the patient, but in terms of uh, potential really uh, terrible disease states. Um, typically, uh, medicine does not accept a concept until there's a readily applicable pharmaceutical fix. I sometimes <laughs> refer to this as uh, find a bug, use a drug. And they did with SIBO. They actually created this paradigm or the paradigm had been created. And then they came up with a medication that's supposedly a panacea. That medication is, as you know, Rifaximin or uh -huh. popular name Zyfaxin. And uh, so tell us about uh, your experience with uh, Zyfaxin because you actually worked in the drug development pipeline. What are the benefits and why bother uh, to develop a natural alternative like Atrantil. Uh, if there's a readily available medication, you know, why get so fancy using herbs, natural therapies? What's, <laughs> what's the reason? So, so there's a couple of things with about Zyfaxin, and I was there from the um, very beginning of it. And we did the original clinical trial, which ended up being published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was for irritable bowel with diarrhea only. And so called IBSD. IBSD. So this was so Zyfaxin. I'll talk about Zyfaxin real briefly. I still use a lot of Zyfaxin. Um, the the thing about Zyfaxin, it is an antibiotic, but it is a modern day antibiotic, and it is poorly absorbed. So the idea is that it's an antibiotic that will try and reside in the intestinal lumen where this problem is going on. So a pipe and cleaner, basically. A pipe cleaner, yeah, exactly. But there is some absorption, and we're seeing that people have been on it longer and a few things like that. That, um, But in my experience, and like I said, I've been using it for since it was – I've been using it before it was approved for IBS. So we were, it was approved for something called hepatic encephalopathy yep. years before. And so I was using it for that. And I would see people that would come in and they would have lots of diarrhea, bloating and diarrhea after, you know, getting sick or taking antibiotics. And the first time I treated them, they'd come back and be like, wow, I'm 80% better. That's awesome. Yeah. And then we would see them uh, six months later and they're like, that's coming back. I'd treat them again. And they're like, that didn't work as well. Yeah. So I'm only about 50. And then by the third time, I'm getting no response at all. So I, I know that when they published the studies, they said that there was no drug resistance. But clearly, bacteria are very intelligent. Yeah. And they're able to adapt very quickly. So I'm not seeing a sustained response. And unfortunately, it can be very expensive. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit cost prohibitive. You give us an idea what it, what it costs uh, from the patient standpoint. Uh, a full course might be 10 days or two weeks of taking it three times a day. I always do 20 days, three times a day at the higher dose, which is 550 milligrams. Lots of data. Oh, boy. So let's say if you don't have insurance, you're looking at $1,500. Mm -hmm. And then many insurance companies do not approve it. So yeah. we're always fighting this. And so yeah. then we end up having people paying $500 as and our copay. Yeah. yeah. It's extremely expensive. Now, the problem is it's it was 9% better than placebo. So it's it's hard for me to get my patients to drop that kind of mm – -hmm. That kind of money and say, well, it's 9% better than placebo for IBS D diarrhea. Mm -hmm. So while we were working with this, this is actually where the aha moment came in. I was, I was at my office. We were doing clinical research. My research manager 
um, had come into my office. I had just gotten off the phone with Dr. Pimentel, and he explained to me the reason why Zyfaxin will not work on the bloated, constipated person. Mm-hmm. And his explanation was that Zyfaxin is a modern-day antibiotic, and the organism that is producing the methane, the known archaea, as archaea, so-called the archaea, very primitive, that, uh, sort of pre pre bacteria. They're actually exactly. archaea are thought to be like three or four billion years old. They they predate uh, the um, the norm, the normal bacteria that we see now, and actually they find them at depths of uh, 100 miles below the surface of, of the earth and in temperature conditions that would be unsustainable for bacteria. They're very hard to kill. Exactly, exactly. So archaea is actually in its own kingdom. You have fungi, archaea, and then you have the eukaryotes, the bacteria. So that's when he explained it to me. He goes, yeah, we figured out that it's this methanobrevibacter smithi. That's the archaea that they discovered producing the methane. And he said that our modern day antibiotics will not affect archaea because the way that our antibiotics work is they have to be absorbed into an organelle. Then they block RNA transcriptase and all these other fancy things that people learn about in pharmacology. And then I wrote, I wrote that down. I said, if we could figure out how to stop the methane, we could really change millions of lives. And almost on cue, my research manager came in. She had a very unique background. She went to law school and she was a policy writer for a senator in Iowa at one time. She goes, huh, that's funny. I remember when we were looking at trying to mandate that farmers put in certain food products for cattle to decrease the methane production being produced by Archaeobacter. And I went, what? Do you still have access to that literature? And she's like, yeah. So that's where we started. We looked at that and went, oh, my gosh. They've been trying to decrease methane production in cattle using natural products. We can reproduce this um, in humans. And so, so, that's so a, a, a natural product, uh, a plant-derived product that was designed to reduce flatulence in livestock – has actually applications in humans. Exactly. And they, it was fascinating to look at all this literature, but nobody, even in that industry, had actually put the pieces together. One area, one scientist would be working on one particular thing, one would be working on something else. And I looked at that and went, wow, if we put this together, and this is how we ended up developing Outron Teal, is that we looked at three different ways to decrease the methane production in humans and by using a food product. So we ended up um, putting three polyphenols, which you're aware that polyphenols are those good molecules that we find on the, the, the skins of uh, fruits and vegetables. They're very heavy in the Mediterranean diet, which is why we think that maybe the Mediterranean diet is, is such a healthy diet is because mm-hmm. these polyphenols. But we can take these polyphenols and they can actually work together to decrease the methane production by these archaeobacter, and that's okay. how we came up with it. Okay, great point at which to pause because let's keep our audience in uh, suspense. Uh, I want to do a deeper dive on the research behind Atrantil, uh, which is a natural approach to SIBO and IBS. We're talking to the developer, Dr. Kenneth Brown. He's a board-certified gastroenterologist, done clinical research on IBS and SIBO, and we're going to find out uh, how he arrived at this formula what its constituents are, and um, more on the subject of dealing with IBS and SIBO. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. 